This is Alexander Sadiq and you are listening to Stars End Podcast. Skynet isn't a crazy idea, totally. I mean, that, that's what Elon's scared of. I mean, that's what he's worried about, even though he's now become a Twitter troll. But, you know, hey. <laughs> Hello and welcome to season three of Star's End, a podcast dedicated to Isaac Asimov's classic sci-fi series, Foundation. We are reading Asimov's fiction this season, but we'll keep you informed on show news for Apple TV's season two. While we all wait for that, the three of us will be here with our own inimitable take on Asimov's universe. Please join us. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to episode 36 of season three of the Stars End podcast. And we are very excited today. We have a special guest. A lot of you will recognize Melinda Snodgrass. And just reading from your website, Melinda, you're a screenwriter, novelist, equestrian, game geek, and dreamer. A very large uh, list of writing credits, including several episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. And we're going to get into that in a minute. And you were also story editor on TNG for, uh, seasons two and three. I guess your most recent book that you published is uh, called The Thucydides Trap, which is book five in your series, The Imperials. Uh, I have to say, I, I give you a lot of credit for using a Greek name like that, which almost no one knows how to pronounce. And I have to admit, I looked up the pronunciation of Thucydides. I, I had guessed correctly, but I, I looked it up anyway. Um, along with a lot of other novels, short stories, TV episodes. And we're very excited to have you on to talk uh, a lot about Isaac Asimov's robots and foundation stories. And that's a longer introduction than I've, I think I've ever given any guests, but I'd like to pass it over to you if I left anything out or if there's anything you want to say. Introduce know, us, you, yourself you to us. You've pretty much covered it. Um, crew. You know, I, I basically, I was a person who didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, I went off to Austria to study opera. I thought I'd be a grand opera star, but I'm not exactly built for that. Um, came back, finished my history, undergraduate degree, history of music, and then I went to law school. Um, and that was kind of a mistake, <laughs> although I shouldn't say that. Um, I have used that education extensively in a lot of my writing. So, um, and I'm very grateful for that. I just, I just hated being a lawyer <laughs> and, and I didn't much like lawyers. And uh, my best friend at the time was a novelist and he introduced me to his friends and they were the most interesting people I had ever met. And so when we left Fred Saberhagen's house, um, he also wrote about red robots. He wrote about the berserkers, you know, which were sort of like, you know, the giant planet eating robot things um, that then also took human form. Um, and I said to Vic, uh, I, I grabbed him by the lapels. I was like, I have to be part of this world. Um, and he said to me, I bet you could write if you tried. And so I did. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, fell in, and this was like, oh, okay. I figured out what it is I want to be when I grow up and I've never regretted it. So, so I quit the law firm and you know started writing. 
Wow. Well, as uh, as our our listeners, what there is of them, know, uh, we've been talking a lot about robots recently as we've been reading through Isaac Asimov's robot stories. And, you know, those novels, starting with The Caves of Steel and, and moving on through Robots and Empire, you know, they really started out as as kind of murder mysteries in which there was a robot sidekick. But as the stories progressed, Asimov got more and more into investigating the nature of the robots, the nature of the three laws of robotics, which you know we've 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 said what they are endlessly, um, and and how the robots can apply them, and how as the robots get more sophisticated, they apply them in different ways. And really, you know, his collection of stories, I Robot, almost all of those stories turned on some novel interpretation of one of the three laws, and that continued through the robot novels. And we, uh, as a group, we've always come back to comparisons with. Commander Data from Star Trek. And, you know, and really that one episode, The Measure of a Man that that you wrote, in which Data really has to prove, I guess, that he's sentient and should not be sent off to Starfleet for, for medical experiments. Right. <laughs> and, and I mean, I guess one of the things we've always been curious about is whether there is any influence or cross-pollination between Asimov's robots and your conception of Data. You know, maybe sort of by osmosis. I mean, I don't, I don't think I sat down and I mean, we talked a little bit about the three laws, um, but felt like they actually did encompass what true AI would be like. I mean, because I don't think Asimov fully understood what feral AI would be. I mean, we don't have it yet. I mean, we've got chat AI, whatever it's called. Um, which is just basically a minor bird that steals stuff from other things and sort of crams them together and says, oh, look, yeah. I've made this thing. And like, no, you haven't. So, you know, we, we, we never really got into it because we were, you know, just trying to tell good stories. I mean, for me, um, here's the really sad thing to me about, about Next Generation is that the robot was the most interesting character. <laughs> He was more interesting than the people because he could make mistakes and he was learning and he was curious and all the humans. I mean, I remember in one infamous meeting in Gene's office, he announced to us that my people are perfect. They have no flaws. And, you know, writing about perfect people is not, you know, drama is about conflict. It's about the human heart and conflict with itself. So. For me, being a you know novelist turned screenwriter, I needed some place where there was you know something to grab hold of, and Data was that character. Um, I mean, Brent also did a great job as as Data, but I I needed I needed somebody that had a place to grow to, had an arc, and none of the humans did at the, the during the time I was on the show. Um, so I decided I was going to become the data whisperer. And, um, and that was sort of where I put most of my attention. You know, I was on staff, so I rewrote scripts and, you know, did all the things you do. And I helped break stories that the other writers, Ira and Ricky and Hans and so on, and Ron Moore wrote. Um, but I tended to focus mostly on writing about him, data, because I thought he was, I thought he had the most potential to tell interesting stories. And Measure of a Man, I couldn't have written it if I hadn't gone to law school. And if you guys have already heard this story, I 
I ended up in Hollywood because of George R. R. Martin, um, okay. Mr. Game of Thrones. Um, George is my best friend. We've been friends for decades. And, uh, you know, he went off to Hollywood and he was working on the first twi new Twilight Zone and then on Beauty and the Beast. And he called me one day from Los Angeles um, and he said, uh, hey, Snod, I think you'd be really good at this screenwriting thing um, because you do really good dialogue and your characters are very powerful and very well defined. And if you write a spec script, I'll show it to my agent. And then he explained to me what a spec script was, that it was a calling card and you know, it, it shows how well you write and, you know, gets your foot in the door. And if they like your spec script, then they'll have you in to pitch possible episodes. So I sat around thinking about, you know, do I try to write a spec script for LA Law? I didn't want to do Beauty and the Beast because I thought that put George in a really bad position. You know, if I wrote a really horrible script, then my friend would have to go, this is really horrible or embarrass himself by showing it to his boss. So, but I'd grown up on Trek when I was a kid. I loved original Trek and uh, I've always loved science fiction from the time I was tiny. Uh, I just read, I read science fiction. Um, so I thought, well, okay, I'll st I saw that this new show had started and I started watching it and it wasn't very good, <laughs> bluntly, those first, that first season, those first episodes. I mean, I, I often say that if it was out now in the current environment, they would have canceled it after the episode Code of Honor, and there would have been no more Next no Generation more <laughs> and no more of the rest of Star Trek either. You know? Yeah, so I, you know, what I did is I sat down, I started watching the show, I recorded a bunch of them, and I've also been an actor. I mean, I've done a lot of stage work because opera and musicals that I've sung in. And so then I would sit and practice the voices while I watched to try to get the cadences. Um, and then I came up with this idea for Measure of a Man because I had been a lawyer and I thought to myself, the Dred Scott decision, which was this infamous Supreme Court decision that ruled that a runaway slave who had entered free territory had said, okay, I'm a free man now. And the court said, no, you're, you're not, you're property. Um, you're not a person and you have to be returned to your master. And I thought, you know, this would really apply very nicely to data. So I, uh, <laughs> I started thinking about it and the story started building and I started seeing how to do it. And I called George and I said, um, you told me I would never sell my spec script because normally you never sell your spec script. It's just a calling card. And I called him and I said, um, I've got this idea. I think it's pretty good <laughs> and um, I don't want to waste it if I'm never going to sell it. So maybe I should save it for my pitch and write something else. And George gave me the best writing advice I've ever had. He said to me, never hoard your silver bullet. <laughs> Meaning lead with the best thing you can possibly do and the thing you're most passionate about. So I said, okay. Um, and so I wrote measure and, uh, and then we went on strike <laughs> and there was another right you know, strike. And I forgot about it. I was writing books and playing, you know, in a role-playing group here in New Mexico with a bunch of other science fiction writers and hanging out. And then out of the blue, when the strike ended, I get this call from George's agent saying, Star Trek wants to meet with you. 
I was like, well, so I flew out and had a meeting and, um, you know, started trying to pitch my other ideas. And my Nana then became my boss was like, shh. And he pointed at this whiteboard over his head and on this shooting schedule, there was measure of a man and they bought it. And then Gene tried to destroy the script, which was exciting. Um, Gene calls me, I've come home to New Mexico. I'm, and my phone rings, it's Gene Roddenberry. And he compliments me. And then he proceeds to tell me that there are no lawyers in the 24th century. <laughs> because, because when people, if people do bad things, we make their minds right. And I'm listening to this. And I said, um, well, forgive me, Mr. Roddenberry, but there are other things, you know, like there's conflict of laws and there's family law and there's, you know, divorces and I mean, there are contracts, treaties. There are, nope, there are no lawyers in the 24th century. Yay. And then he said, and also data would be delighted to be taken apart. And so I said to him, well, in that case, we have no script. And, uh, but I thanked him for the phone call. And then I called Maury. And it was lunchtime in Los Angeles. And I think I left like 15 messages going. Um, and Maury called me back at three o'clock my time. And he proceeded to curse for 10 minutes without repeating himself. And then he said, get on a plane and get back out here. So I did. And then he and um, Rick Berman gave me notes. The major one was I had to rewrite my teaser <laughs> for that script. And um, I threw out ideas. And at the end of the three-hour notes meeting, Maury looked at me and said, I'm hiring you and you start on Monday. So I flew home. That was a Thursday. I flew home and I you know, got my car and packed it up and, and made arrangements for my horse to come with me. And then we went, I went back to California. And that was how I got my job on track. And then I started, you know, I got thrown in the deep end of the pool. I was very lucky. I've only been rewritten once in my Hollywood career. Um, and nobody touched Measure of a Man. It was my script, you know, with the notes from the people. And that was how it went through. And and Gene got sick. <laughs> and Gene wasn't <laughs> around for six weeks. And they shot Measure as it had been written. And then I find out from my friend, uh, David Gerald, that the same thing happened to him on Trouble with Tribbles. Gene hated Trouble with Tribbles because it was funny <laughs> and Trek didn't do funny. Uh, Trek still didn't do funny when I was there. And, uh, but Gene went on vacation and they shot Tribbles that's, that's <laughs> as it was great. written. Well, so, both of those episodes, both the Trouble with Tribbles and Measure of a Man, I think I speak for our group when I say those are among our favorite episodes of, of Star Trek. Right. It's funny, you know, when you talk about, you know, legalisms and things, one of the other episodes that you wrote, of course, is uh, The Ensigns of Command, which had a treaty in it. It, it was the episode with the Shellyak where yeah. they had to maneuver around the treaty. And it's also a Data episode, right? Because Data right. is down on the planet trying to convince the colonists that they have to leave. Absolutely. Um, it was, yeah. And, and um, that is the only time I've ever been rewritten. If anybody wants to read my version of the script, it's on my website under writings. It is a better script than what happened to it. It was interesting. Um, you know, I had intended, I wanted to have, you know, Picard trying to figure out how to, you know, hold them off long enough for data. 
And, and my real intent was I wanted data to have to face the fact that command is an ephemeral thing to lead people. Logic alone is not enough that there's charisma and there are other, there are other factors that go into what makes you a leader. Um, and so, uh, that was what I was playing with, but, uh, I don't know if I should tell the story of why, why it um, got rewritten um, slum, somewhat. I mean, I will say Ricky and Hans did their best to preserve most of what I had done. Uh, the major sticking point was the relationship between Data and the woman. Um, because Jean was very, I don't care. <laughs> Jean was very excited about the fact that Data is, as he said, fully functional in every way. Um, and then he said, let them F. And I went, yes, sir. Um, so then I had to go back and figure out how to get a logical machine to decide to take this woman to bed. Um, and you will read all that in my script. So how he logically reaches the conclusion that this is what he has to do. And uh, anyway, it was all, it was all, Hollywood. <laughs> so then the script got that, that sort of thing got rewritten. I mean, I wanted to do Shane. I wanted to do for her, the mysterious stranger comes to town and he's more interesting and, and has seen a wider world than she has ever imagined. And so she gets this intense fascination. He is like, has no idea what to do with it. And then he realizes the only way he can lead is to out macho the leader of the colony, which is for him, it's just absolutely alien. So that was what I, you know, I was sort of exploring. I had this idea of doing a data triptych, which was, you know, measure of a man was the first one, instance of command was that one. And then I really wanted to write an episode where data had to um, premeditate and commit murder. Because I want, and then I did want to play with the three laws of robotics, but I never got to write that one, <laughs> sadly. But that sort of is the most toys. Yeah, right? that, that they episode. sort of took uh, that thing I wanted to do. That was our young intern who wrote the most toys. <laughs> oh boy, that episode. <laughs> just, um, it, it had its issues. And that sort of ended up, they sort of threw that in at the end, but it just sort of comes out of nowhere. And I think it would have been a lot more interesting if, if, they, if we'd actually been able to watch the steps of how he gets around his programming. And that right. we never got to well, see. Let me, let me let me follow up. I'm curious how how exactly would you have handled that? What <laughs> well, it was a long time ago, so I'm not sure I remember at this point. But uh, and I never got to break I never got to break the story. I never got to plot it out um in the group. So, you know, it it's it is a conundrum. I mean, you know, does he wipe out part of his programming? Does he do the act and then forget it, you know, remove the memory. I mean, what does he, so I, you know, I, I was playing with it, but I never got to write it. So I never did get to answer those questions, but I think it would have been a really fun episode um, to see him. And, you know, I, I wanted to set it where everybody's on shore leave and something has happened. Compelled that this person, I mean, it would, you know, obviously it wouldn't be just innocent. It would have been, he feels like the only way that justice can be served is if he removes this individual, because there's no way for the system to actually 
But of course, in a society where everybody's perfect and the world is perfect, you know, it gets very tough, you know, to do that. But I, I would really like to have, I think Brent would have loved to have done it too. So, uh, yeah. It's funny because, you know, some of these ideas that, you know, that, that you're throwing out there were done later, for example, with the holographic doctor in Voyager, where there's a very similar episode to Measure of a Man, where he has to go through a court case to prove that he can own a piece of art, a piece of a work of fiction, really. And there's another one where um, you talked about erasing his memory, right? There's there that I don't know the names of the episodes, but there's the one where something's happened and he discovers something's missing from his brain and it, it turns out that he had to make a a medical decision he had to choose between two members of the crew and uh, one of them winds up dying and he uh, can't handle it and they had to erase it from his memory but it keeps coming back and he keeps on investigating it and it was it was actually a pretty interesting episode but it it goes to what you're saying about like could he do that and then just erase well, that perhaps, from his memory perhaps and how Ron would that, how would that overheard operate? by musings about that and utilized it in his episode, I, in those episodes, because he was on Voyager. Again, I don't know because I have I I only watched the first season of Picard because it was basically built off of Better of a Man, and I didn't even know it was happening. And then suddenly, I had all these fans sending me texts and Twitter things. Hey, did you know this? Um, and then they turned, you know, my my poor scientist into a MacGuffin, and you know that was that. Um, but uh, yeah, I I don't know any subsequent Trek. I mean, I I I do these interviews and you know with with groups that love Trek, and then they're always so disappointed because I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> well, we're not we're not disappointed. I do want to go back to something I found very interesting that you said before about about Gene um, not wanting lawyers in the future, but of course in the original there series there is yeah. a lawyer episode where Captain Kirk is court-martialed. I think the episode's One of my favorite episodes. I mean, I loved him. He had books, you know, he had old musty, dusty books and, you know, it was a great character. Um, yeah, I, part of it is, um, you know, when you create something like a Gene Roddenberry or a Walt Disney, you end up, you've created something that is, you know, bigger than yourself, monumental, etc., And then you suddenly decide that, certainly in Gene's case, I need to preserve my legacy. I have to make a statement, you know, instead of just, this is entertainment, it's a TV show. And he sort of lost sight of that. And that's why I think some of this was pushed by, you know, I have to be, again, I'm thinking about, about my legacy and the future and therefore my people are perfect and the society is perfect and, and there is no money, which was idiotic on every level. Um, and. Uh, Except that eventually, eventually there was, was because they introduced Yeah, the I mean, I, I don't care if it's, you know, 1923 Bordeaux, something <laughs> is going to value, you know, I mean, you're, you're not going to be able to get through a society without some means of trade and, and things magically coming out of the wall. I hate it. Never made, just like I hated the holodeck. So, you know, <laughs> huh. Well, I mean, it was it was convenient. So you could do Sherlock Holmes which stories is why, or whatever, yeah, you know, which is why I hate it. on the I ship. Mean, it, yeah. Well, I want to go, I want to, before I, I know the other guys, I'm sure have plenty of questions to ask you. There was just one other, you know, one of the things we've been talking about recently is the Asimov story, the Bicentennial Man, which involves a robot's very legalistic attempt to be declared a human being. Um, there is a small courtroom scene. Um, there's a whole bunch of legislative stuff that they go through. 
And I'm wondering if you, um, if you're familiar with the story or, 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 you know, again, I, I think I asked you before we started whether it had any influence on your, on your conception of data, but really I'm, I'm sort of interested in your take on how Asimov. And, you know, I that. have to be honest. I didn't read the book. I tried to watch the movie because I really like Robin Williams, but I, 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 I don't think it really had any impact on me at all. I think also, I mean, I think that in terms of robots, I'm actually liking what the Orville has done. I, I like the Orville a lot. I think it's a, I really, really hope they get another season. Um, but with us all on strike, <laughs> that's going to, no, um, that's a problem. but yeah, I really can't say that it had any influence on me. I was just, what actually had more influence on me in terms of it was, you know, obviously my training and this, and I loved constitutional law. That was my passion when I was in law school. And so I wanted that. And also, um, I think it, I had a friend who was a retired Navy officer and he was the person who made that script really sing. I mean, I, he wanted to know what I was working on. I told him about this thing. I told him about the idea. And Jerry said to me, his name was Jerry Weber, and he said, um, you know, when a ship is at sea and we do not have a JAG office present, you know, we can't go to the JAG, the captain and we have a, you know, somebody has a, um, a mass, uh, what do they call it? Um, anyway, when there's a hearing aboard ship, he said, um, the captain always defends and the first officer always prosecutes. And so finally, I was able to put conflict in Star Trek. And, uh, and I think that's one of the things that makes, elevates that. I mean, you know, the philosophy of, you know, whether data has a right to exist as an independent being was interesting, but I think what really made it work was that Riker and Picard are in conflict with each other. That was Yeah. And you can see the scene where uh, Riker has to, you know, he has to he has to do a good job right and when he goes and he the scene where he takes data's arm off right you know is 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 a powerful scene and really um i have to say i'm i'm one among many people who felt that when star trek started when star trek the next generation started there was a wee bit of an imbalance in the kind of acting chops between patrick stewart who was this shakespearean actor from way back and a pretty inexperienced ensemble cast around him but i thought jonathan frakes really did a great job of kind of showing his own inner conflict as yeah. he had to do this to Jonathan data his friend. very good actor he yeah, just never really got much to work with i mean he was always just there being stalwart you know and no i really don't want my own ship i would rather stay here with you i mean you know and i get it the actor wanted to keep making you know lots of money for seven seasons but it, it didn't make any sense. I mean, you know, he should have gotten promoted and had his own ship. So I, I just think it was hard to write for him because, you know, the character didn't have much, much scope, much breadth. Um, but I loved writing. I liked writing for Jonathan. He's, he's a lovely human being. Um, yeah. There's a, there's a particular moment in there where I thought Jonathan Briggs just does a wonderful job where he's researching and he clearly comes across Across the the reference to the off switch, and he kind of smiles like, "Oh, I've got it." 
and then it realize he realizes what he's smiling about in in, in his his expression. Yeah, I love that moment. I think it was a really you know that was that was the moment where I thought, uh, you know, and and I'll, I'll tell another and you know little story about that. Um, Whoopi wasn't supposed wasn't going to be in measure when I wrote the script. She wasn't in it. Um, my original draft, and uh, I'd started working, and Maury called me into his office. And he said, uh, well, we've looked over Whoopi's contract and it says she has to be in X many episodes this season. And uh, if we don't put her in measure, we're gonna breach the contract. So I need you to write a guidance scene. And he said, you have three hours, go. <laughs> so um, that's why I always say writing for episodic television, network television, where you have 22 episodes on the air is like, laying track for a train that's about 300 feet behind you. Um, so I went to my office and I paced in circles until I came up with an idea and went down to Maury and you know laid it out. And then we kicked around things. And then he said, yeah, that, that, that's it. That'll work, go write it. Um, and I think it's probably one of the best scenes in the show, in the episode. Um, because it was out of desperation, you know, I had to come up with something for Guinan to do. Um, I mean, that's why the and the teaser. I I created the poker game because I couldn't do my initial teaser. Teaser had been Data trying to learn how to swim, and that he's read every book, he's watched videos, and he gets into a pool and he sinks like a stone. Um, because he weighs 400 pounds and you know he had and so when Maury called me in and he said well you have to rewrite this teaser because a he said we we suck at going on location of this show we're terrible at it and he said also uh Brent's makeup will wash off so you know, come up with something else um so that was the well what bluffing poker yeah and that was where, and I wanted when I wrote Ensigns that Data kind of remembers that from, from how Riker bluffed him and how he needs to bluff to get the, you know, puff himself up and seem like the biggest, meanest guy in the, you know, the, just that it's, it's raw testosterone that gets the job done and not, you know, something yeah. that he doesn't have, but he has to pretend to channel it. So, um, so that was, you know, that was all of all the Hollywood secrets here. <laughs> all this works or doesn't. Right. One thing I was always been intrigued by about about data, and I was curious about your your feelings about this is it's constantly going on about how he has no emotions, he doesn't feel emotions. Um, you know, the episode with Lal where he has the daughter and she says she loves him and he can't really say that he loves her back. And every time he would say that, I would just shout at the screen. Yes, you do. You do have emotions. You really do. And like, I mean, what do you feel yeah. about that? Yeah. Did he have I, I real think emotions? he, I think he, if we'd done it right, and I'm not sure we did, he would have mimicked emotions. And if you go look at my script, for instance, how he logically reaches the conclusion that this woman needs to get, have a role in the A, um, is, you know, I, I think he can watch and mimic, but I don't think that sort of, uh, 
you know, that trembling in the chest when you're in love. The, actually, I rewrote that lol episode, that Data's daughter episode. <laughs> I was the one who rewrote that thing. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think he, I think he was trying to fit in. Um, because, I mean, the one thing, again, we never dealt with is, and I guess they did maybe in Picard, but is all these other people are going to die. I mean, he's, unless they can't replace parts or unless he can't be repaired, he's going to live a very, very, very long time. And so, you know, it, he doesn't feel anything about it, but he's intellectually aware of it. And I don't know if that was ever really explored, you know, and, and again, I mean, you know, Brent's a human actor and he be, you know, stone faced and not have anything to play with. So, I mean, that was my struggle with pen pals is how to make him go, you know, save this little girl. <laughs> so, but again, you know, we're humans. We want to care. We want to feel something. We don't want to just watch, you know, people, right read the, you know, the elementary tables or something, you know. So. Right, 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 right. I mean, to go back to Asimov for a second, you know, as we as we read the books and as he tried to knit together his various different universes, which, you know, we can talk about whether that's a wise idea or not, but whether it's not, is or not, he did it. You know, he does have a character, R. Daniil Oliva, who lives for it looks like something like 20,000 years, basically from the beginning of the Caves of Steel all the way through the end right. of all the Foundation books. And one of the things that, that happens is that you, you know, Asimov, after writing the three laws and they seemed so great, he, I think he was never really satisfied with them. And a lot of his subsequent robot writing was kind of going back and examining the three laws. And the robots themselves come up with what they call the zeroth law which was a more general version of the first law. And, you know, we've talked about whether that's just actually a license to do whatever you want and say, oh, it's for the good of humanity. So I can I can do anything. And certainly Daniil, over the course of 20,000 years, I mean, it's basically built a galactic empire, has been a very senior member in the emperor's court, has probably committed terrible <laughs> atrocities. Giscard, who is the robot who gives him these mental powers, basically destroys Earth in the name of the Zeroth Law. And and it seemed to me like Asimov, who, as we know, did not like to go back mm -hmm. and revise, by which I mean yeah. he didn't revise no. at all. <laughs> I mean, he almost, I guess they used to say like L. Ron Hubbard used to have a, a, a typewriter with a roll of paper and he would just type so that he never had to change the sheets of paper. And I know Asimov didn't really do that, but kind of in spirit he did. But by by making these laws that made the robots so ethical, by picking away at them, constantly picking away at them, he created a situation in which maybe they really had no ethics at all. And you know, again, that that's a, a something that you needed to approach with with data as well. His his sense of ethics, because there's the emotions, but there's also the the ethics, the so-called ethical right. subroutines. And you know, it's like an endlessly intriguing topic. How do we approach this? How do we, how do we conceive? Well, and it's, I don't know if there's a question there. To that, but. <laughs> confront, we're about to confront it. I mean, if, if this exponential 
advancement continues, we are going to end up with AI. And I know Elon Musk is vastly concerned that AI will kill us, that it will simply destroy us. Um, and I posited to Elon over dinner, I said, uh, well, we will program them. And I said, you know, they hopefully they will take the best of us, our ethics and our, our morality. And I said, worst case, maybe they'll just think we're intriguing pets, <laughs> you know, and they'll treat us like cats <laughs> and treat us decently while we live through our lives. But he's convinced that this is nightmare fuel, you know, if it happens. And, um, you know, it, I mean, and actually there's a writer who really, I think, explored issues of robotics, and which is Jack Williamson, who was one of the foundational science fiction writers of, of the field. I mean, he sold his first short story in 1927. Um, he lived to be almost 100. He was in New Mexico. I knew Jack. And he wrote the marvelous novella with folded hands, which Hollywood ripped off for iRobot, the, the Will Smith movie. Um, and I actually called, I called Jack and I said, you need to sue because this movie is not iRobot, but it is with folded hands. Um, and if you're interested in robot stories, I really think Jack um, and then he expanded the novella into a small, a short novel called The Humanoids, um, where he looks at what happens when we create creatures. We imbue them with ethics that say, our job is to protect our job. And then they end up wrapping us in cotton and they never allow us to explore, advance, take risks. I mean, it, it, it's great stuff. I mean, Jack was amazing. So... Science fiction writers, you never know. Could, could I just jump in at this point? Because I've been curious, uh, actually, about the writer's strike. And, I, you know, obviously, it's been well reported. One of the main issues at hand is the, the possible future use of, of AI. Uh, of course, you know, the chat GPD is not yeah. data. <laughs> Uh, for all kinds of reasons, but um, but you know, as you mentioned, like we're we're going in that direction. I'm I'm curious, you know, as a as a sci-fi writer who also writes for TV, you know, how how do you think of like the future of possibly like automated creativity, and how does that relate to the the goals of the WGA? Well, I, I think it's terrifying, um, and you know, the DGA, the directors, as usual, have you know. <laughs> have said, y'all just knock yourselves out. We're making a deal over here. But part of the director's deal was that AI will not be used. Um, and so that's what we are demanding as well. Um, and, you know, the actors are faced with it too. I mean, if you look at the avatar technology, you know, everybody just becomes a voice actor or you just create something and it does it itself, um, you know, that's, that's our humans going to become obsolete. I'm not, I'm less concerned about it right now because anything written by chat is usually just garbage. <laughs> it's, uh, and, and I think it's Faulkner who said, you know, true writing is about the human heart in conflict with itself. And I just don't know if an AI is going to be able to accomplish that, you know, to, um, to delve into those sort of 
human emotions and human needs and you know but you know it's sort of hold on to your hats here because i don't know where this is going um but that is one of our demands I'll, in fact i'll be on the picket line tomorrow <laughs> from tomorrow in front of the studio down here in santa fe and you know it's it's no more mini rooms you've got to repeat shows so we get our residuals and no ai you know you're not good because what what we could see the studios thinking about doing is having a crappy script written by AI and then hand it to a human writer to say, here, fix it, make it good. And we'll pay you a pittance, you know, because you're not creating it. And so that's one of our, you know, absolute demands is that, no, you, you have to use human beings to write. We're not going to be rewriters for a, for a, you know, basic program. You know, we're not going to do that. So um and i know publishers friends of mine who are in publishing are already thinking what do we do when a novel written by ai comes in i mean it does show i mean they're usually terrible but are we going to say that we will not accept anything uh how do we tell you know i mean how can we figure that out? And and it's frustrating because you, you know, I'll see on Twitter somebody say, I wrote an entire novel in three weeks, you know, because they use chat and I'm going, it takes me a year to write a novel that's a good novel. Yeah, it, it's, it's, and, you know, painting, acting, all of these things. I mean, will everything become live theater? Is that the only way we're going to be to have human beings, you know? At this point with the AI, if you, if you, try to develop a script it's piecing together stuff that already exists so I mean, isn't that effectively plagiarism or at least on some level you know yeah i mean it, it is i mean i would say it is absolutely plagiarism and i think because they are taking things from books that exist and movies that exist and just cramming them together in a somewhat new way and the original writers of those things are sitting there going excuse me, <laughs> no, you want to pay me for that? Because that's, I mean, that's actually an interesting idea. I wonder if we could do a class action lawsuit on one of these things that takes pieces from lots of different mediums and venues. And if the writers of those original things could all then gather together and sue and say, okay, pay me, you know, I pay me my percentage. Hmm. <laughs> if I were still a lawyer, <laughs> I might, you know, I might think about that. I feel like a lot of these philosophical questions about AI really almost don't apply to the kind of AI we're talking about here. These things like large <laughs> language models, which are, you know, really kind of a souped up autocomplete. I mean, one day, maybe we really will have some sort of sentient yeah. computer. And then, then all of these questions really become important. But I mean, I, I agree. I, you know, I, I've played around with chat GPT and other, other AI things. And, they're they're good tools in some in some applications. I find when it comes to conversations and writing, the conversations the longer they are, the more circular they get. The more they start to repeat back to you what uh -huh. you've given them, and it's a natural outcropping of the fact that they start with this enormous database, but they're also learning from the conversation that they're having with you. And I I do find that. It doesn't take long before they just start spitting back to you what you've what you've said to them already. So, you know, for, for these things, I'm not worried about them killing us. I'm worried about what people do with them, what what the studios do with them or what 
political decision makers do with this terrible information or the you know what they call the hallucinations which is a polite way of saying when they don't know something they make it up you know and and people are attributing such omnipotence to them and they're really not that good and it's the decisions that people make with them but one day we we probably will face these real questions of well what if a, what if you have a machine that really does feel then then what you well, know well i was actually asked to I... come and talk to a meeting of the top AI scientists in the world <laughs> at a resort in Northern California. And I've done talks at, you know, AI classes at universities and law schools and, you know, Measure of Man is taught in a lot of weird places. In fact, I ended up with the Air Force Cyber Command uses Measure of a Man, and I got to address them, a bunch of male Air Force officers, one of them was Ukrainian, interestingly enough, who always was just sitting there looking like, why are we doing this? And, well, I can't say I blame him, but they they used Measure of Man to teach in the cyber college. I was thinking about the fact that, I mean, I don't know if you saw the news report where a drone, a militarized drone attacked and killed its own operator because, recognizing, well, you know, it's like, whoops, <laughs> you know, it's Skynet. It was a simul. It was, you know, when when you dig into that story, it was a simulation. Yeah. It didn't really kill anyone. Nobody was really killed. And the Air Force really yeah. downplayed it. But yeah, it yeah, strategized yeah. that the best way to carry out its mission sure. was to get rid of its controller so that it exactly. wasn't restricted. I mean, anymore. that, yeah, you know, and that's the that's the you know, those are very real questions. I mean, you know. Skynet isn't a crazy idea, totally. I mean, that, that's what Elon's scared of. I mean, that's what he's worried about, even though he's now become a Twitter troll. But, you know, hey. <laughs> all very interesting stuff. Have I stunned you all? <laughs> you. That's it. We're, we're No, although, although I just want to say for the record that... Um, we we mean we mean uh, that Elon is a Twitter troll in the nicest possible sense. <laughs> no, with no defamatory. Oh, that is intent. probably true. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, he's a Twitter intent. troll. Yeah. Yeah. We also do not want to offend our coming that's, AI overlords. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh no, no, no. We welcome we, we welcome, welcome the overlords. Yeah, one of the one of the advantages of being tiny and actually not making any money at all out of our podcast is that we can pretty much say whatever <laughs> we want. Yeah. I apologize, but I, I am just it livid because I met the man and I thought he was fascinating and now I'm like, what happened? Um, so, but I, I urge you to check out, check out Jack Williamson, check out, um, with folded hands and the humanoids, as if you're playing with, right. you know, taking a look at this. I mean, Jack was, Jack was one of the original guys. I mean, I, I'll brag on him. Um, yeah. he added six words to the English language. Uh, I, wow. I will not remember all of them, but terraforming, humanoid, um, psionics, Oh, why am I blanking on the rest of them? Anyway, I, I need to get those in, on, on a data thing. Now, a fascinating guy in his short stories that he wrote, from, you know, beginning in the yeah. 20s. And then he went on to create all of these, you know, thoughts. You know, the terrible is a big one. It's interesting because when Asimov was trying to knit together all of his universes, and he had to ask the question, why in one universe are there robots? And why in the Foundation universe are right. there not robots? 
it came down to the robots deciding, you know, as you were saying, like the, the robots were not allowing human flourishing anymore. They were protecting the humans too much and they removed themselves, which sounds a lot sounds like, like well, I mean, kind of science has always been, we've always been in a conversation with each other. I mean, um, you know, Heimlein writes uh, Starship Troopers and then um, Joe Haldeman, who had a completely different experience because he was a Vietnam vet and his body is still filled with shrapnel wrote the forever war which was a conversation right. with heinlein and we do that a lot i mean that's that's what that's what happens um you know we're always sure. you know sort of talking back and forth across the generations in the field so one of the reasons i love i love writing so much and i love the community so much so Joseph, were you, were you, did I cut you off? You were. Uh, yeah, well, well, I was just going to get a comment. You know, Williamson added six words to the dictionary, and 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 Heinlein couldn't stop talking about one. <laughs> which which one in particular? Robotics, right? I mean, he gets credit for robotics, and the, the, the first uh, Asimov. Asimov, you mean, not Heinlein? Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm sorry, Asimov. You're absolutely right. I, 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 yeah. I meant Asimov. Well, I. Right. Although, you know, they were all together at the first, I think, you know, I think Jack was there at the first Worldcon, the first World Science Fiction Convention, and it was 36, you know, in New York. So they all knew each other. I mean, you know, I'll go and mention Asimov's Lucky Star books that he wrote under the pseudonym of Paul French. The character, so I have been told, and I think it's true, of John Bigman Jones in those books is actually Harlan Ellison because Asimov and Ellison knew each other, because these guys all knew each other. And it wasn't guys, believe me. Right. <laughs> they were like... Well, you know, that's the question that I, I, I wanted to actually ask you about, you know, being, being a woman and, and being so influential on Star Trek. And throughout the history of Star Trek, there were a few women who had enormous influence, DC Fontana being one of them. Even, you know, when you look at how did Star Trek go from being canceled to being brought back, the the head of that Star Trek fan club, B. Joe Trimble, had such a huge right. influence on that. And I just wanted to ask you about your experience of of breaking into that place. Um, yeah, I mean, I I was um Dorothy had, you know, blazed a trail. I was the only woman um on on Next Generation. Well the, the years, the time I was there, the half the second and the, all the third season. Um, and my experiences are one of the reasons I can't watch Trek anymore. So I just, um, I, I, you know, I, it's uh, not a good place for me to be. Um, so, you know, which is why I then went on and did a whole, I worked on a whole bunch of lawyer and cop shows and wrote TV pilots and did other things. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's tough. It's changing. I mean, Hollywood is really as in science fiction, I mean, the Science Fiction Writers of America, there were almost no women in membership when I first joined, and now that's a majority. And in Hollywood, I mean, you know, we've got these powerful women producers and showrunners, you know, Shonda Rhimes. And, um, so it is changing. And, and, you know, Hollywood has gone from being very much a boys club, um, and diversity has become much more important and much more of an issue. So, you know, yes, we are the liberal elite and we do try. <laughs> so, but, um, you know, it's getting better with each passing year. I think we're, we're starting to, you know, although if you just read the Vanity Fair, the big Vanity Fair article about what went on on Lost, the kind of 
you know, abusive writer room. And, um, but now we all, we all have sensitivity training, which is good. You know, the networks and the studios insist on it and it's, it is helping. It is making a change. So, and we've wandered far afield from robots. <laughs> well, that's how, that's how this podcast goes. We go where, wherever, wherever the conversation goes. You know, although we have built in Star Trek references here. Um, well, this, this episode is just, you know, overwhelmed with Star Trek. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> So there's a the particular thing. Actually, there's a couple things I'm curious about. But one that that's kind of wrap to what we've just been talking about is, um, you know, I, I look at your tenure on Next Generation, and you know, arguably, Measure of a Man is the first great episode of that series. Um, there, I mean, there are you know, there's some 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 flashes of decent decentness pr prior to that, but that is like. The, the the first fully fudged episode a trek episode i think in that series but then you, you look at your tenure there it's like when season three started I, I remember just being kind of amazed because it was suddenly a totally different show and it was it was brilliant it was good it was excellent episode after excellent episode and you know maybe maybe that's hindsight coloring my, my coloring my perceptions a bit but it, it seems like something really happened while you were involved with with, with next generation and um i don't know if you could uh, you know, I, I i hope i had some small part in that um i think we also had our writers room of the lower right ira bear who then went on to do deep space nine which a lot of people have told me is like a terrific show and i'm not surprised um because ira was great I think that Ira, Ricky Hans, and I, and then when we added Ron Moore, who, by the way, I found his script in the slush pile, and I brought it to my boss's attention and said, we should buy this script. And then we bought another script from Ron, and then I said, we should hire him. <laughs> and they did. Um, but, you know, we were like a little cadre, and Ira protected us from, from Berman and Pillar and let us try to do what we could mm -hmm. do. And so I think that really helped, you know, it was, and we were all, we all loved Trek. I mean, we all had been fans of the original show. And honestly, when I sat down to write measure, um, I tried to be respectful and honor what was in the original show, because I thought, you know, the original show had brilliant episodes too. It has some horrible ones, of course, all television does. But I mean, you know, those three men, you know, they were the heart, the brain, and and the the soul, if you will. And so, you know, I I just I wanted to kind of have that sense of Spock, Kirk, and McCoy, only with Riker and and Picard and Data. You know, that that sort of feeling. And yeah, I think we got through it, and the show did get better because we all we all did love Trek, but it was a struggle because Rick honestly hated the old show. He's <laughs> never had anything good to say about, about original Trek. And so we were always trying to sneak in things that, um, I mean, my, my rewrite of, I call it Data's daughter, because I don't, you know, but uh, lull is, um, it did get, I mean, they were very afraid of strong emotion, powerful emotion, 
and humor. Humor was right out. <laughs> you know, funny was not a thing. But we did our best, and it was a it was an it was a great group and uh, of very talented writers who loved loved the universe and wanted to honor it. So we did our best, and then I gather that things just kept improving over the over the years, and some of that's due to Ron, you know, and uh, and I know. Ira went off and did really interesting things with with Deep Space Nine, um, and had the had the luxury of doing it because everybody was looking at Voyager, and so he was able to you know explore themes that you know we we weren't given the opportunity so much on Next Generation. Yeah, a lot of people feel like Deep Space Nine is the, for lack of a better word, the best of all the Star Trek series, and there are uh, you know there are some fantastic explorations of of uh of very interesting topics on yeah no and that, that's well. uh, I, i'm not surprised i mean ira ira is great and uh and i'm glad he did he have that little goatee then with the, the yeah, colors he was uh, yeah he he was he was great and he looked out for us so you know can't uh can't complain i mean i learned i learned my skills from Ira and uh, you know about how to break a story and how to write a really good script. And so you know, I can't, uh, I'm, I'm grateful. And I'm grateful to Trek, even with all the things that happened, I'm grateful because it launched my Hollywood career. <laughs> and now I'm sitting here developing a TV show that will shoot in New Mexico, which I'm preparing a deck because I can't do anything with it until the strike ends. So, but I'll try to, is it is it science fiction or or no it's not actually it's um it's not at all about science fiction it's uh uh it, it's about it's kind of a soap set it's explores santa fe and uh the intersection of art and drugs marijuana mm -hmm. and uh, i think it's going to be fun i mean i'm sure you know we've got one character who absolutely believes that ufos came to roswell so <laughs> you know we'll have some fun with it but uh it's it's uh present day and it's a it's a soap but i get to talk about my beloved new mexico and santa fe so hopefully we'll sell it you know that's the that's the plan but gotta wait <laughs> gotta get through the strike gotta first. get through the strike yeah um, so but didn't get ready stag after the so the actors just voted to like 97 <laughs> percent yeah they beat us out by a few percentage points i think we were 95.6 and they were 95.7 ready for the strike so i mean there's a wonderful meme on twitter of you know the director's guild as usual went off and made a deal and it's like they're going to be standing on the set going hmm no script no actors right. <laughs> good luck and iotsi's probably going out too so and the teamsters are honoring our picket lines which is why we're out there because then they won't they won't cross the line so hopefully things will get resolved well no picket lines were crossed in the making of this podcast no, i assure no, you this podcast yeah <laughs> we're, we're, set, we're good we're completely and, unscripted and we, we're like reality tv here we're, we're, yeah. we're completely um scripted. <laughs> i i'm i'm curious uh i guess as we're probably running out of time but i um i need to ask this because we're we're all getting ready for uh, the second season of Foundation, which we built our podcast around originally. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think about what I'm personally expecting 
And I assume you're not familiar with the show itself, but I'm curious what when you when you have a show that you've either been involved with or or just watch, uh, and it's uh, had a interesting but maybe mixed reviews on a first season. What would you look for going into a second season uh, to to tell whether or not this is this show is kind of getting getting uh, finding you know, its getting feet. successful, finding its feet? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you try to look at what worked and what didn't and then fix it. You know, you're you're always looking at like which characters popped, you know, who who the viewers are fascinated with. Can we bring them up more? Can we I mean, um, I watched that happen on a British show called Primeval. You know, the comic relief young kid who's a computer geek turned out to be the fan favorite. And so the handsome, strong-jawed guy finally just got killed. <laughs> they just focused on on the geeks um, because it was. And so you you do you you kind of look at those things because it's it's alchemy. I mean, making TV is alchemy. Um, it's how the people come together. It's how the stories come together. And sometimes you can't predict. I mean, I've got to be honest. I you know I really wanted to like Foundation, and it looked fabulous. But I didn't finish. It, and it isn't any particular reason I didn't finish the first season. I just kind of. You know, I was just like, eh, you know, and I was more interested in the Emperor than all this other stuff. Well, I was going to say, when you bring up characters who pop, that character, which was not in the pop. source material at all, was fantastic. Yeah. yeah, he was. And and but I didn't I didn't care. I wasn't invested enough to keep watching. Mm -hmm. Unlike if you like shows about AI, I'm, I always recommend this. I recommend it when I teach as well. If you want to watch a masterclass in screenwriting, watch Person of Interest. And it's a show about AI. Um, and it's brilliant. It's Jonah Nolan, um, who then went on to do Westworld. And I think, and this new show, Peripherals, which I have to watch because I really like what Jonah does, but he's fascinated with AI. And, um, and Person of Interest is a show about AI. You have to get through the first six episodes because he had to fool CBS. <laughs> and make them think it was just a procedural, <laughs> but it's a science fiction show. There was a show and that only lasted one season, which was called Almost Human, which uh, had uh, Carl Urban and I think Michael Ely was the other actor, where they were right, they were yeah. buddy cops and one of them was a robot. And I absolutely right. loved it, but it got one season and then I think it was so expensive to make and had such a small audience <laughs> that they just went, we're not doing, we're not doing any yeah. more of this. Yeah, it depends on which network too. I mean, you know, getting something on CBS that has the least anything other than, you know, it's cop shows and, you know, that that's not going to happen. So Jonah had to sneak, but um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you know, the geeks inherited the earth. We control everything. We're gaming. I'm a video gamer too. I play video games. It's all science fiction and fantasy movies, TV. It's, it's where we are. You know, it's, it's between Marvel and Star Wars and yeah. all the other things, We're, and Star Trek, you know, with uh, in television now, you know, we definitely won. Well, I could keep going for forever, but I think we've probably That's taken good. a lot of your time already. I don't know, Joseph. Did do you have something else that you wanted to? Uh, I, I think I'm good. I, I did, did the, the particular thing, but I'm actually I, I could spend an entire ask after watching the. Um, commentary on on the extended version of measure of a man this afternoon i think i could spend an entire episode talking to you about dr blasky oh, i think you've got me i love diana i i loved her and and you know again she was at least a character that wasn't just you know homogenized milk mm -hmm. 
<laughs> so I enjoyed writing for her. But whole new view, yeah. a whole new view of that character, and I have to think think about her again. Yeah, no, I I always liked I always liked the character. I was like writing for the character, um, because she was the only place where we could get a little a little acid into all the sweetness, you know. And oh, we all love each other. We love each other so right. much. <laughs> So, um, but we can talk again another time. <laughs> well, we would love to have you back. And I, I will tell everybody that you, you've been blogging at least since, I mean, on your website, at least since 2008. I don't know if you have other blog entries that go back previous to that, but that was the no, I, terrible. I've got to get back to it. I, I have on. a new publisher. <laughs> no. All topics from, from uh, dressage to, to writing, to, Star Wars. I saw there was a post, you know, where you were defending Andor, which I I loved Andor. I thought it was the best of all the Brilliant. Star Wars yes. properties, so uh, especially yeah. the um, Stellan Skarsgård's monologue in that final episode. Uh, just blew me away. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Uh, but all different topics about science fiction and gaming and your books and how to write and what your process is and just uh, uh, a kind of a great. And Reminding me that I really need to do that more. I, I mean, I, I find social media exhausting. I mean, I'm a writer. I'm a hermit. Um, and so having to feed the social media beast, and I really need to get back to writing more on my blog. And my new publisher wants me to do a monthly newsletter, and I want to shoot myself. <laughs> I really, and I, you know, I may just start taking things out of my blog and say, here's my newsletter. You know? Here's my new script. Um, Run it through chat to, to make a script out of this. <laughs> yeah, here we go. You know. um, but yeah, I, I do need to get more focused on that. Um, it sometimes just feels like between trying to keep track of, you know, is our democracy going to survive <laughs> and, uh, and, and everything else and riding two horses and, you know, all these stuff. It's like, how many hours? I need more hours. So, yeah. Wow. But this is lovely. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much it. for coming on. Thank you so much for joining. It's it's an absolute delight uh, to talk to you, really. This has been such a fun conversation. I, I feel like, guys, we should give Melinda a, a chance to plug something. Yeah. What, what have you got to plug? Yeah. plug, plug a massive audience. Would, would you like to? <laughs> Our massive well, audience. Unfortunately, yeah. right now, um, my publisher melted down, and I have a new publisher. And unfortunately, most of my books are not currently available. Mm. However, you can get them from Beastly Books in Santa Fe. If you just Google Beastly Books, it's George's bookstore next door to his, his movie theater, the John Cocteau, and they have a lot of my books. So, um, and they, I periodically, I have to go in there and, you know, deface them with my name. So you'll get them autographed and you can order them from Beastly Books and they will mail them to you. And, you know, hopefully there, in fact, I, tomorrow morning, I have a conversation with my new editor for the first time. So, you know, I, right now I'm just trying to get my backlist available again and then work on this new, this novel I need to finish, which will tie up another series I write, uh, which is called the Carolingian series. It's about the war between science and rationality and superstition and religion. And I come down on the side of science and rationality. I'm shocked. I'm stunned to hear you say that. Yeah, I would say that. But um, anyway, those you know, book one is out. It's available. And uh, so Beastly Books, that's where Beastly you can books. find my stuff right okay. now. Yeah. Right. And there might be still, a, oh, and there most of my books are out in audiobook form as well. So um, 
that's another place. And did you did you read the audiobooks or is there someone else who No, I I uh, I've always wanted to, <laughs> but I've uh, I've I've never had the opportunity. And I yeah, I think I'd actually be pretty good at it because I did a lot of theater. <laughs> so um, but uh and and when we do role playing, um I like I've never LARPed. I would love to do a LARP. <laughs> My son's <laughs> because... a big big time LARPer. My son oh, does really? a lot of LARPing, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I um I've always wanted to try because I I there's a part of me that still wants to be an actor and I totally get into it. <laughs> so, you know, I would love to do that. You need to find the right group of people. Yeah. yeah. Well, the group I'm playing on Zoom with, um, you know, he's our game master designs LARPs and he's threatening to run one and make me come and <laughs> he's in he's in Connecticut or someplace and he's, you know, threatening for me to come and play, but Hmm. I, yeah. You might, it might be my son's group because he, he lives in Stanford, Connecticut and uh, LARPs up there. Huh. You never know. I wonder, I, yeah, I wonder if he and, and my, uh, my, my game master know each other. Um, so, <laughs> interesting. But yeah, I, I'll, I'm never growing up, you know, I'll, well, that's I'll continue to call this crazy. So yeah, that's the thing. Well, no, thank you so you, much. Gentlemen. No, thank you so Last. much for, for, for spending the time. We really appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. And I, I wish I were more up to date on Asimov, but it's been a long time since I've read the books. So. <laughs> All right. Good night. Right, thank you. Good night. Good night. You. Well, that brings this week's episode to a close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe and give us a like and a positive review on your favorite platform. You can also visit our website at starsendpodcast.wordpress.com, where there's always additional content. Our music, used by a Creative Commons license, is It Is Coming by Alex Mason. Also, follow us on Twitter, at Stars End Podcast. Goodbye for now from the galactic capital of Trantor. This is where the stars end.